Good morning, everybody. Wake that ass up. We made it. Woo! We made it to another glorious day. You are listening to Chopping It Up with Claudia. No, I am not a guest host for the day. I am Claudia. Yes, yes, it is me. No need in asking me something only I would know. I know I sound a little crazy. I sound like I'm in transition right now. <laughs> Either for woman to man, man to woman them to us who knows what they're calling people these days <laughs> i just lost part of my voice it's actually starting to come back i am coming from a fantabulous weekend in florida i was down at universal studios the other land of make-believe yes my wig is still pulled back that's how much fun i had <laughs> and i know some of y'all are like during the pandemic yes bitch during the motherfucking pandemic and no i am not vaccinated since you want to be nosy don't judge me. Pray for me. Just pray for me. I am quarantining and I will be getting a COVID test. I'm covered. I'm covered in the blood. I had my mask on the whole time. I had my sanitizer loaded and at the ready. I practiced social distancing. Well, for as much as I could. There's not much space could be given. Waiting in line, especially to get on the Hagrid roller coaster, the adventure motorbike roller coaster. The shit was off the chain. I got to tell you, I probably rode it about seven eight times i was there for two and a half days three days and the line was no joke i heard when it first opened back in 2019 i believe it was june of 2019 the line reached back to the entrance of the park so people waited an entire day to get on that harry potter hagrid of adventure motorbike whatever i'll get the proper name at some point <laughs> but imagine paying 300 to get into the park just to wait in line and ride on one roller coaster for 30 seconds. It's crazy. That's how you know that they are diehard Harry Potter fans. I'm a diehard Harry Potter fan, but that would not be me. Okay, I don't have $300 to spend just for 30 seconds of thrills. No, <laughs> not doing it. But thank God it wasn't that bad when I was there. First day, we had to actually reserve to get on a ride. It's on the virtual line app. So we had to like refresh a couple of times before we actually was able to do it. But the sucky thing was the line was still long. I thought, you know, maybe that the line would be sort of reduced a little bit. Perhaps it was reduced a little bit because, I mean, we waited for like about 45 minutes, which is not bad. It's an average amount of time that you wait to get on. So I can imagine if there wasn't a uh, virtual line that maybe we would have been waiting for a couple of hours. But whatever. We was able to get on, you know, back to back. Each day we were able to do that. So we managed to get in where we fit in. You know, you know, the mummy ride is still as thrilling as ever. Still one of my faves. But I got to tell you, the ride to beat, the ride to beat is the Velocicoaster in the Jurassic Park world. I don't think many people are put on to that roller coaster because the line should have been just as long, if not longer, than the Harry Potter Hagrid motorbike adventure shit. <laughs> it was it was intense, I'm telling you. You feel like you're about to be flung out of the goddamn ride and into the water. It's over parts of the water. And, you know, I can't swim. So I was holding on for dear life. You know, there's so many twists and turns. You're riding upside down for quite some time over the water. So the view is, is, is beautiful. My, my titty damn near popped out. 
<laughs> the ride was over and you would have thought your girl was wearing a little Kim dress. <laughs> I was like, oh shit. <laughs> Giving people more thrills. <laughs> and the scenery, the 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 sets, it, it was it was so so amazing. I posted it on my my Instagram, uh my personal Instagram and chopping it up with Claudia Instagram so you can go over there and check it out. I also got on the rocket too. I don't think I got on that. Um the first couple of times that I've, I've visited Universal, it felt like I was on—I was riding on a cyclone. I ain't gonna lie to you; it was a little rickety, raggedy. You know, I was like, "Ain't nobody want to put no WD-40 on this shit." Either do that or just get rid of it. Shit was just jerking and tossing me around. I got off. I was like, "God dang, I need a back brace." The fuck is going? On? <laughs> but you know, I mean, it was—it was—it was pretty dope. But I only rode it once. I ain't wanna get on it again i didn't trust it but overall it was a great great weekend trip definitely if you go plan for a two-day pass to enjoy the best of the best try to hit all of the rides but if you want to really really enjoy it all and that's the water rides as well because we didn't get on any water rides but not just the rides but the entertainment definitely going to need to do a, a, a full three day to just enjoy it all and have some fun i mean you can never not have fun at universal anyone says that they've gone and didn't have fun you need to put them in therapy something wrong <laughs> but did you guys have fun this weekend i hope y'all's weekend was just as exciting as mine hit me up on social media and let me know what exciting things y'all got into i want to know you know i'm nosy but speaking of exciting i'm very excited about my guest today I have the legendary screenwriter, Gerard Brown III, who is known for his works on Happily Ever After Fairy Tales. I remember as a kid waking up and watching it on HBO. And what was so great about it is that it told your classic children's stories with a bit of a twist, and it tells it with black characters and black voices. So that was super dope. It was super great to see that on television. You know, so you can watch it now, I think, on um, HBO Max. You can stream it. Or it might be on Hulu or something. But I, I think definitely HBO Max. But he's also written for the show Spawn. You know, among other things. But my favorite, and I know it's your favorite too, is the 1992 cult classic American crime thriller, Juice. Hey! Yeah, you know I'm hype. I know y'all hype too. This is that feel-good, I'm-a-shit type music. You know, it just gets shit going. But when we get back, we'll have Gerard in the hot seat. And don't worry, I'm going to get all in his girl because I want to hear everything about Tupac. I don't get about anything else. I just want to know about Tupac. Because I got some burning questions that I need answers to. You know, like what was he like in real life? What was he like on set as an actor? What did he eat while on set? What did he smell like? What was his breath like? Like, <laughs> just, I really want to know. I really want to know all of that. Don't judge me. What I say earlier? <laughs> Why not jam to the tunes? I'm gonna go put on a pot and take a quick tea break, try to get my voice back. And oh yes, it will be spiked with what? Moscato. That's right. This is Claudia. Don't go nowhere. Sip the juice. I got enough to go around. And the thought takes place uptown. I grew up on a sidewalk while on street talk and then taught the whole New York. I go to Queens for Queens to get the food from Brooklyn. They pony in Manhattan and never been took it. Go uptown to the Bronx and boogie down. Go strong on the island, recoup and lay around. Time to build my juice back up. Pop stack up. Suckers get smacked up. Don't doubt the clout. We know what I'm about. Knocking niggas off. Knocking niggas out. Shaking them up. Waking them up. Breaking them up. Breaking them up. Standing on shaky ground. Too close to the edge. Let's see if I know the ledge. 
friends, then they rest in peace. Somebody gotta suffer, I just might spare one. And give a brother a fair one. Stay alert and on fees. And I do work with these, like Hercules. Switch the South Force, switch your right jaw. Cause I don't like all the hype when I fall. Smooth, but I move like an army. Pull a poop down, face brothers try to bomb me. Putting brothers to rest like Elliot Ness. Cause I don't like stress. Streets ain't a place for innocent bystanders to stand. Nothing's gonna stop the plan. I'll chill like Pacino, kill like the Nero. Black Ambino, die like a hero. Living on shaky ground, too close to the edge. Let's see if I know the ledge. Shells lay around on the battleground. Dead bodies are found throughout the town. Try to put shame in my game to make a name. I'ma put it on a bullet, put it in your brain. Rip the clock like a buckshot. Who cares where it goes? Just keep the cast closed. No remorse when the life is lost. I paid my dues, paid the cause. And my pockets are still fat. Wherever I'm at, I get the welcome mat. Even if my crew is steep, but one deep. I attract attention, people like the feet. So come say hi to the bad guy. Don't say goodbye, I don't plan to die. Cause I get loose and I got troops and crazy juice Ain't control of many like I have told of many Hang out with people west, don't try to play me I'm at war a lot, I don't want to die But no war in the shop, my gun is warm a lot When I cook beef, the smoke will never clear Areas in fear, but this here's some fear Living life too close to the edge Hoping that I know the ledge Time to yawn, showers on, powers on, late for school, I catch the train, girl set the style and whisper my name, I push up like an exercise, check the intellect and inspect the thighs, select the best one, pull it to the side, keep it occupied for the rest of the ride, read up my resume, she know already cool, just meet me after school, we can moan and groan until your mom come home, and you'll be calling me out, don't compose, sweat me, she didn't want to let me lose, come get me, that's if you want to sip the juice, cause the streets Me. So I take my gun off safety Cause a lot of niggas hate me coming out of the building They set me up, sprayed with automatics They wet me up, and the puddle with blood I lay close to the edge I guess I didn't know the ledge Hey everybody, we are back and you are listening to another episode of Chopping It Up with Claudia. And I am here with the dopest writer that I know personally. And I'm not talking about someone that I met once at a screening and exchanged business cards with. No, I am talking years of friendship and mentorship. Why you laugh at the friendship part? We not friends? No, no, no. I mean, I just like the way you put that. I, you just never put it that way. I never heard that. I never know you felt that way. Wow. Oh, of course. I mean, I mean, I mean this podcast. I'm, now I'm, you know, I'm learning stuff already. Look, and you are in, let me just tell you, you are in the inner circle. I don't have that okay. many friends, but you are one of them. Okay. And ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to him. His name is Gerard Brown. Welcome, kid. Thanks for stopping on by. 
I'm okay. I'm okay. I've been setting up a vlog. There's some bad movies on Netflix, so this is a nice, <laughs> this is a nice perspective. I would ask you what, but I don't want no, to put no, you on no, blast. I don't, do, I don't know if I ever told you this. I was at a, I had a friend in L.A. named Jerry Neely, who since passed away. He was he ran a vintage video store in the Las Vegas section of Los Angeles. Yeah, he and I used to talk. He was a walking encyclopedia of film. You asked me about any film, and he'd say, "Oh yeah, that was 1934. That was so and so left RKO, went over to Universal." I mean, he was like that. So wow. I had seen a movie which I hated, and <laughs> I was in his shop, and I was like, "Man, if you seen this movie, this movie was god awful, man. Who greenlit this? What? Who greenlit this? And blah blah. What a waste of money! There are all these good scripts. Like people trying to do good work, and yet, and and this crap gets made. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't get it." You know, like, what's the big deal? And this guy gets his horrible movie made. Oh, so you went in. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I thought it was just the two of us. And as I was winding down my rant, this guy, comes, <laughs> this guy steps out from the back rows, and he rents a video, and he walks out, and he's walking across the parking lot. Jerry looked at me and said, you know that movie you were just talking about? I said, yeah. He said, that was the producer who just walked out of here. Wow. And I said, well, I guess I can't wow. go to him for a job. I can't go to him for a job. Well, see, you know, I'm mad at your friend because why didn't he? He tried tell to warn you? me. He did. He did. I mean, okay. he, he was contorting his face. He was like, Gerard, Gerard. I was like, no, man, no, man, it was awful. It sucked. Wow. Yeah. Now that's funny. Uh -huh. I actually have a similar story. I was um, on my way to a commercial workshop and I was like fresh out of college. And I was running late. I probably was like about 15 minutes late. And so I'm running. I get in the elevator and it's me and it's another woman. And I said something to the effect of like, you late too, huh? <laughs> I was like, well, good, because I'm always late for something. It's nice to not be the only one late for a change. <laughs> that made me put my foot in my mouth because when I got to the floor, we both exit out and we walked in the same direction. And then we walked in the same room. I go and I take my seat and I'm thinking that she's going to come and follow me and take a seat beside me. But she instead goes to the front of the room and addresses herself as the casting director oh, wow. for the workshop. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, oh, shit. I think that was the first time that a black person had turned red. Like you can see them literally turning wow. red. And from then on, I was like, OK, I got to be mindful of the things. Yeah, that I yeah, say, that's I like say it too. yeah, yeah. You know, that happened to you. On the other on the other side, because I remember you were casting something, one of your projects, and you were walking there, and this like this brother hit on you in the street. Oh, oh I forgot about that. Yeah, that <laughs> one. That one was. That was awful. hilarious. That was hilarious. That one was. That was weird. No, he didn't obviously didn't know that I was casting, and I didn't know that he was coming to audition. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> And exactly. it was just like, okay. Uh, well, and he looked at me like, I guess I'm not going to get the part. Yeah, no, right. you ain't, like brother. No, yeah. you ain't. But I just want to say thank you so much for joining me. And I'm really, really glad that you're here because I know there is a wealth of wisdom and knowledge that you can share with me and the listeners. You've been in the game for like, what, 30, 40 years now? I mean, how old are you? If you don't mind, how, old am, how, I? You? how old am I? How can I put it? <laughs> how old do you need me to be? I tell everybody, and I tell everybody in the business. I tell people. You tell me that. Whenever somebody mm -hmm. asks you your age, how old do you need me to be, Matt? How old do you need me to be? 
whatever age you feel. So if you feel that you are 25, then I need you to bring me that 25 year old. Okay. You know, if you feel like you 80, then I need you to bring me that 80 year old. Okay. Well, it depends what time of day. Like in the morning, I feel like I made it, you know, like by, 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 by 11, 12 o'clock, like I feel like a teenager. So I've been around a long time. My first play mm -hmm. was produced in Washington, D.C. in the 70s, in the mid-70s. John Oliver Killings was my first mentor. And he lived in Prospect Park in Brooklyn. But he taught a couple of days a week at Howard University in Washington. He'd take the train down to teach a couple of workshops. And I was taking his workshop. I was just writing poetry at the time. I'm so I could meet girls. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, that was my motivation. And uh, he stopped me one day after class. And, and my poetry was being well-received. Mm. And so he stopped me one day coming out of class, coming out of workshop, and he said, man, stop writing this poetry, man. Stop writing some one-act plays or something. So I started writing one-act plays, and they were done at the D.C. Black Repertory Theater. That was 76, 77. I wrote my first full-length play, and I came to New York, and that got produced at the Public Theater, the New York Shakespeare Festival. At the Public Theater, what, in 1985, right. Jonan? The, the play Jonan? 1985, yeah, 1985, Jonan. Let's talk about Joan and what was that about? And what was that experience like? How did you feel getting your, your production produced by the, the public theater? When I came to New York, I had that play and some other place, and I went to all the black theaters, the Negro Ensemble, Moss Repertory Theater, Henry Street. I went to all the black theaters in the city, but they didn't know me. Mm -hmm. And so I got a grant from National Endowment for the Arts, and I produced Joan and myself, the American Theater Factors on West 54th and 56th Street, I forgot which street. And it was supposed to just run for 12 performances, but it wound up running for six months. And Joe Papp's people at, from the public, they said, we'd like to move this to the public. And I was like, oh, it was the first play by a black playwright in seven seasons and the first play by a black male playwright in 10 seasons. He said to me, why did you bring this play to us? I said, I didn't think you'd be interested. Mm -hmm. And so I went up to the public for about six, eight months and ran in public. Then I ran some other theaters around the country. Ran in L.A., ran in Chicago, ran in some other places. And I knew that play worked. This is how I knew the play worked. Because it was based on my dormitory experience at Howard. I based the characters on the guys I lived with. Mm -hmm. And they all came to see it on different nights. And they all recognized everybody else except themselves. Oh, of and course. How, and, and that's how I knew the play worked. <laughs> But speaking of going to Howard, yes, you got some HBCU blood in you. I wish that I've, I've gone to an HBCU. I instead though, went to uh, one of the whitest schools in the country, <laughs> SUNY Potsdam. Oh, wow. Um, I'm so sorry to hear that. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, too. I'm, <laughs> no one is more sorry than I am. Um, but I mean, it was, still was a good experience, but sometimes I'm just like, oh, I wish that I went to an HBCU. Can you share like some of your experiences at, at Howard? Well, 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 first of all, I didn't want to go to Howard because my parents met there and I didn't, I didn't want to go where they met. Why and not? So, that sounds special. Look, I was 18. What did I know? I, I really didn't want to go to college. I wanted to get out and get a job, start making some money. <laughs> my mom drove me to an orientation at Howard University. And when I walked in the Rampton Auditorium, and I saw those women, and I was ready to sign immediately. You know? Honey. Yes, yes. So, you saw them big booty hoes. <laughs> I was, I've never seen so many good looking women in one place. And oh. I was like, oh my God, oh my God. I might flunk out, but that right <laughs> You bought them big booty hoes. <laughs> as long as they were going to be in there, 
I was going to be in there. So what can I say? I got to be not only African-Americans, but black people from all over the world that all want to come to Howard. I mean, HBCUs are the thing. Yeah, you go to yeah. one, go, go. It is, it is a priceless experience. And also, if I hadn't gone to Howard, juice wouldn't have gotten made. I would have never met Ernest Dickerson. And Ernest Dickerson, like he's doing a lot of uh, great things. Um, oh, he yeah, just he wrapped up directing a project right uh, about a month ago, right? But he did something in South Africa with Ridley Scott. For those mm-hmm. who don't know, Ridley Scott is Ridley Scott's guy did Blade Runner, uh, Alien, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Ernest was doing a Raised by Wolves thing. He told me and did something oh called DMZ. Mm-hmm. But he's done Walking Dead. He's done okay. Dexter. The Wire, he's done a whole bunch of stuff. And speaking of Ernest Dickerson, you know, it's a lot of notable people that came out of Howard. That mm-hmm. lineage mm-hmm. Is, is long. I mean, there's nothing but successful, inspiring creatives and, and leaders, such as VP Kamala Harris. You have Taraji P. Henson, Chadwick Boseman, Amiri Baraka. I actually did a play of his slave ship in Liverpool, England. You have Ozzie Davis, Donny Hathaway, Thurgood Marshall, Felicia Rashad, Debbie Allen. I mean, the list just goes on and on, you know, and on, you know. Yeah, like Debbie Allen, I think, was a junior when I was a freshman. Mm. And I didn't know her because we had two different majors and I was on the other side of the campus. But she was there when I got there. I worked there years later. I conceived and co-produced a show called Spike and Company doing acapella for great performances for PBS. It was the season premiere for PBS. And uh, Debbie Allen and Spike Lee were the host. And like Sam Jackson did a cameo in it. And I picked six groups that musically had nothing in common other than they'll perform. And acapella, I, had, I did the Persuasions, the Six Trickle and Doo-Wop. I did Take Six, we did Temporary Gospel and Jazz. I did Lace with Black Mombazo from South Africa. That was one time that I really met Debbie when she came to do that show, when she came to host it. Mm-hmm. You know, like we had just talk Because our fathers went to dental school together, and we were talking mm. about, you know, at Howard. At Howard. Well, I want to know, so what was your life like after you graduated out of Howard? How did you get your start as a screenwriter? Once I graduated, I worked at Gallaudet Dead University for the Deaf in Washington. For life sign language, I had to learn sign language there. Shout out to the deaf community. You know, <laughs> but, uh, but people said to me, "You want to see if you got any real talent? You got to go. To, you got to go to New York." So I packed mm. and I came to New York. So now you were in New York. Tell me how Juice was conceived. Ernest Dickerson called me one morning at one o'clock in the morning and said, "I got this great idea about these four guys in Harlem, and I want you to write." He wanted me to write it because I was the only writer he knew that would write it for him for free. Okay. <laughs> so I, and I'd never written a screenplay before. I just, you know, I just done stage plays. So hold on, and, hold on. What that says to me, guys, is if anybody out there, filmmakers, directors, find you a friend who's a writer who can write your shit for free. <laughs> you ain't got to pay nobody for nothing. <laughs> But let me tell you something. When John Killens was talking to us in workshop, he said, I know a lot of you want to write movies and TV and stuff. He said, write some one-act plays first. Because some people, they want to start writing films. Most of us want to start writing movies. But he said, start writing some short stories and one-act plays first. And compared it to acting, he said, if you can do like a good one-act play, it's easy to make that transition. He compared it to acting. He said, you take any well-trained stage actor that can do theater and do it well, 
99.5% of them can make the transition and they can do movies and they can do television. But there are some Hollywood blockbuster superstars that you put them on a Broadway stage, they would fall apart. When you write for theater, you're usually writing within certain confines. You can get away with stuff in film that you cannot get away with in theater, basically. I didn't notice yeah. uh, Juice, was, Juice was your first screenplay. That's something new to me. Everything I wrote before that, they're all stage plays. They're all stage plays. Wow. They're all stage plays. So, so I wrote the first draft in about five weeks. And, uh, and I gave it to him. He gave me notes. I went back. I did a, I did a rewrite. And then it was on the shelf for three years. Mm. Well, that's not unheard of. <laughs> right. Right, right. But that's. Uh, Hung out for three years. Juice got made because of a fluke. There were three producers on Juice. Uh, David Heyman, who since gone on to do a Harry Potter franchise. Neymar Ritz, who since gone on to do the Fast and Furious franchise. And Peter Frankfurt, who did the uh, Blade franchise. And they'd acquired another project, which they were going to do. But they felt it needed a page one rewrite. And they were looking for a black writer to do the rewrite. Now, what is a page one rewrite, in case people don't know? A page one rewrite is where you have to rewrite the whole script. Mm -hmm. As opposed to tweaks, as opposed to changing this thing or dropping this or adding this. And blah. Mm -hmm. A page one is when you go through the entire script and you redo the whole script. Mm -hmm. That's what they were looking for. And so my agent sent them Juice, the script to Juice as a writing sample, just as a writing sample, to try to get me that job. But they read the script and they called her back. I said, we don't want to do this other project now. We want to do Juice. Wow. <laughs> and I had to go home and read it again because I hadn't read it in three years. Wow. Now, did you know that so she that was sending that on your behalf? No. She would hear her stuff and she would just submit me for it. You know, she would just, mm. I didn't know that she'd done that until she got the response. I was with Ernest, too, when she called and said, listen, I sent them the Juice script and they liked it and they want to do that one. Wow. So that's how that got me. Now, a quick sidebar. You've written the script mm -hmm. to the time that your agent had sent it out to the producers. That in-between time, like, what were you guys doing? Ernest was Spike Lee's cinematographer. And mm -hmm. so he was doing that. I had a job. I was working at Time Warner Cable TV in the control room to pay, to pay the bills. And I was writing. And that was it. And... Mm -hmm. And just going to plays when I could, going to movies when I could, going to parties when I could to meet people, you know. And I was just doing that, basically. Yeah. Movies are made too often, not, not due to the quality of the script. Movies, movies are often made by who is involved, who is doing this, who is making this movie. You can write a great script and it could potentially never get made. I could sit up here in my apartment and write a piece of garbage. But if Tom Cruise likes it, it doesn't matter. Right. You know? Right. And I can cite example after that, after example of that. Mm -hmm. With, uh, with, with the all the bullshit that's being made yeah, right. now. <laughs> yeah, right. Seriously, you know. But now is an opportune time because now there's so, so many, many platforms streaming. Yeah, really. Yeah, really. Yeah. I mean, people are looking for product. Yeah. People are looking for stuff. Yeah. And so, like, if you have a, if you have a way in, use it. Exploit it. Because, like, when I was in my 20s and 30s and early 40s, there were a few places... You can go. Now there's a spectrum of places where we mm -hmm, can go. Mm -hmm. you know? We're now approaching the 30-year mark. 
I remember going with you to the Schoenberg in Harlem for the 25th year anniversary. And that was really, really dope. I mean, it was packed. (laughs) Like this film is such a cult classic because generation after generation after generation has watched this film. And when this came out, I was a baby. So I was the next generation of folks who watched this film and enjoyed it. It's a timeless piece. It really is. It's every person who watches this movie can see a bit of themselves in it and, and, and relate to it. Like being a kid who cut school, you know, who's right. hanging with their boys, hanging with their girls and, and dealing with the dilemmas of being a teenager. I just remember the story of my sister. She said when she, when it first came out and being in the, in the theater and it was jam packed. First of all, my sister shouldn't have been in the theater watching it. Cause I asked, was 12 years old. <laughs> what are you doing yeah. in the theater watching? Yeah. <laughs> she just remembered it being the theater being packed. Like there was not a seat available. Two things happened. To make me to make me realize because when it was released the reviews were mixed and it did just okay business at the box office i mean made its money back made its money back but like it but like it wasn't considered a blockbuster anyway so i was like okay that was a nice adventure and let me see if i can get another job writing for a show or something but the 20th anniversary at the magic johnson theater in Harlem was a red carpet event so many people showed up they had to open up a second theater mm-hmm. and I, so that for another I, night or the same night? That's for the same night to run at the oh, same wow. time because one theater, every seat was gone, and so they had to open up a second theater to like accommodate the rest of the people. Wow! And didn't even accommodate all of them. This was the first time that I realized that it had reached a certain level of classic status. That wow! I, Twenty that years I later. Twenty years later, I was talking to a friend of mine in Maryland, and one of my students came out, grabbed me by my wrist, led me, in, and said, "You gotta see this." And she led me into one of the theaters. And the audience was in there. They were yelling up the dialogue. They knew all the dialogue. They mm. knew all the dialogue. Mm. You know, like, and I was in there. I was like, they know the dialogue better than I do. You know? Mm. And so there was that. And plus, I have an actress friend named uh, Phoenix Carnavale, who is an actor and mixed martial artist uh, and a big Juice fan. She called me one day and she said, do I go on Facebook? And look up Roland Bishop because when Ernest gave me the idea, he only he had Q, Steele, Raheem, and Bishop. I had to give them last names and first names. I had to get the families. I had to do all that stuff. I had to flush the characters out. I had to flush the situation. Yeah, yeah. And so I gave Tupac's character uh, the first name Roland, R O L A N D, and she said, "Go on Facebook and look up Roland Bishop." There were about a thousand people on Facebook. Oh, wow. So to say that the parents who saw the movie. Yes. <laughs> yes. Name their children Roland Bishop. Roland Bishop. <laughs> Tupac was the first one cast, by the way. I want to talk about the casting because I've heard stories of, of, about how it was all, all done. But I want to know how the name Juice came up. Who came up with the name Juice? Actually, Ernest came up with it. Gotcha. And was that the slang at the, of, at the time? Yeah, yeah. If you got juice, then that means you got power, you got clout, you know? If you got the juice, you got the power, you got respect. Gotcha. And so, and that's what Bishop is after in the script, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. He's after the respect. Yeah. So, Jackie Brown was casting the lead and, and all the characters, actually. They wanted four uh-huh. rappers. Uh-huh. 
And so we look at all these rappers, but we look at the actors, and the actors were trained. You know, the rappers were, some of them had presence, but the acting training. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Except for Pac, because he went to performing arts high school in Baltimore. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know that. They don't know that he was an actor first. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. He was an actor first. Yeah. Omar yeah. Epps was, just graduated from performing arts high. He was 17. Who was and the youngest yeah, at the time. Yeah. yeah, he had he had five callbacks. He had five. Mm, mm. Uh, he for was, the role uh, of he, Q. Yeah, for like, the role of Q. Jermaine uh, was the only one that done a movie before. Uh, Lean he on was, me. He, like was in Lean on me. Right. Mm-hmm. He, he, he was the only one. And Raheem uh, played, played by Khalil, Khalil Kane. Kane. Yeah. Who people think that on Sarah Juice, the girls were chasing Tupac? No. The girls were chasing Khalil. That's of course, he was light-skinned. <laughs> <laughs> That's who they were chasing down. He but, is. Uh, let me yeah. tell you. Let me, let me, I just got to pause here. Khalil Kane was fine. I mean, he <laughs> is fine. He is. He was like, <laughs> if, if I yeah, was yeah, at the age, I would have been a groupie. <laughs> Was, I would have been his groupie. And he was the oldest. And he was, he was the oldest. He was 26. Mm. Now he's in his 50s, but he still looks like he's like in his 30s. And he's still, right, yeah. You know, like yeah. it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Now, I, I think I remember in conversation, or it might have been at the, the Schoenberg for the 25th uh, year anniversary. Is it true that they said originally they wanted Tretch for the role of Bishop? Tretch was considered for Bishop, but actually, Pac didn't come to audition. He, was with, he came in with the other guys from Digital Underground. He was in the hallway trying to talk to some He girls. came to talk to some women? <laughs> yeah, no, no. Tupac was in the hallway trying to talk to some women. Ernest came out and asked Tupac if he wanted to read for one of the parts. And so he came in and read for Q first. He came in and read for my Epps part. And he did a good job. But then a casting person, Jackie Brown, said, give him the parts for Bishop. So, and so the game page for Bishop, it was a cold read. It was cold. He'd never seen the pages before. He went out for five minutes. He came back in and he nailed it. So he was the first one cast. Well, I mean, that's all that acting training. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And the fact that he wasn't even there to audition. Yeah, I mean, yeah, really, yeah. That's yeah, what's, really. what's he wasn't crazy. He was there to audition. He was just hanging out. Were you there during the yeah. cast, casting yeah, call? Okay, okay. Yes. Which Feelings. is unusual because... Directors tend not to want writers around. You know, Why directors is that? don't want writers around. They don't want any conflicts with their image. Once the writer's finished and the director has the script, they interpret it the way that they want and they don't want the writer coming in and influencing. Gotcha. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. That's a great story. Can I tell the William Goldman story? Yeah, sure. Please. One of my favorite screenwriters was a guy named William Goldman who passed away a couple of years ago. It was the late 80s. What he, did he write? He wrote All the President's Men. He wrote Princess Bride. He was no joke, okay? Mm-hmm. I saw him in an interview in the late 80s, and he was talking about his career. He was talking about an incident where he wrote this script, and they sent him the check. Thank you. Don't call us. We'll call you, and we'll let you know when the red carpet is. <laughs> we'll let you know when the red carpet is, okay? But he said, you know, he came from theater, and he wanted, you know, he used to find out what was going on. You know, he wanted to see what was going on. Right, because writers so are like out. during the the entire process of yeah. <laughs> the, the the run from rehearsal to the performance yeah, run. Really, I mean, like in theater, you are around for all that. Theater is the only place where writers have power. 
writers do not have power in television. Writers do not have power in most. And with television, it is the producer. Show, right? The producer's domain. It's it's the the show like, like the Shonda Rhimes and the Norman. Yeah. Movie. Yeah. Like they're the ones who have the power, like in television. Yeah. In movies, it's a director, especially a list director. William Goldman found out from somebody he was supposed to find out from where they were shooting this film. So he went over there one day and he walked out on the set. He was talking to the techs. He was talking to the wardrobe people. He's talking to everybody. He's, he's walking through. Everybody saw him. Everybody knew who he was. And everything was fine. He said everything was going well. He said he'd been there about 20 minutes. And the second AD, second assistant of director, walked over to him and said, I've been instructed to come over here to tell you that if you don't leave the set immediately, I'm going to call the local sheriff and have you arrested. What? Yeah, and he had to leave. And he had to leave. Directors tend not to want writers around. Look at Lethal Weapon, Richard Dunn. Shane Black wrote Lethal Weapon. He wrote it for Nick Nolte and Harrison Ford. But the director, Richard Donner, who also just passed away recently. He is the one who wanted Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. Shane was strong enough to know to take the check and go sit down. You know? <laughs> and keep his mouth shut. And keep his mouth shut. Yeah. You stupid. That was that was funny. <laughs> I cannot believe that they came to him and said, like, this is Joe. And the reason why we're here is because of you. But you got to get off this set, my brother. <laughs> okay, Gerard's not responding, so I assume he got a call. Bloopers of podcasting. <laughs> Mac, you there? Yeah, I, I figured you got a call. Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I can't hear you. Are you talking? I am. This is hilarious. Let me send him a text. I can't hear you, Mac. I can't hear you. Okay, all right. Then I'm going to cut, then I'm going to hang up. Is that what you want me to do? You want me to hang up the other line? You feel like a mute. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And we're back. Or so we hope. Please, Lord Jesus. <laughs> this is what happens when you do a podcast series on an EBT budget. On an EBT budget? On budget? an EBT budget. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just got that. I just got that. That's funny. So I was yeah. saying, I said, it's just, it's amazing how, you know, the person who's responsible for the people <laughs> being hired and having work on the set is the one who's yeah, being right. kicked off exactly. of the set. Right. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. So was yeah. he a prolific writer at that, at that point? Or was this like yeah, in the beginning? The, you know, this was a script he wrote called Shoot the Moon, I think. And uh, and he was like in his forties when he did that, maybe forties. But the rest of his resume, I mean, Butch Cassidy, yeah. I mean, all, I mean, all the presidents' men, the Prince's Bride. I mean, come on, you know, he, yeah, he was no yeah. joke. It's kind of disrespectful, but eh, I mean, what are you gonna do? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Were you at least invited on set? You didn't get kicked oh, yeah. off. No, oh, yeah. no cops oh, yeah. or sheriffs was, was called on you. <laughs> no, no, like I was. I mean. I never had that problem. So, mm -hmm. so, you know, I wrote for Happy Ever After, Fairy Tales for Every Child for HBO. I didn't have a problem mm -hmm. with that. Mm -hmm. Even when I wrote for Spawn, well, when I wrote for Spawn, I, I wasn't on set much. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I personally have not, have not had that problem. But, but that's why a lot yeah. of people go into a business, they want to be writer-directors, you know? Right, they, right. So they can have control. Yeah, Yeah. right. Yeah, right. You know, like, yeah. you know, yeah. it is a control thing. How long did it take to film... 35 days. Larry, oh, wow. Larry, Larry Banks reminded me of that. 
a couple of years ago. It took 35 days to shoot it. Wow. So, yeah. I do have a couple of um, fan questions uh, concerning Juice. One fan wanted to know if you could reverse or switch around the actors. Like, who would play who? If I could switch them around? Yeah. Khalil was considered for Q for, for like a minute. He read for Q also. Oh. Did a good job. I can't see anybody else playing playing Bishop in that case. You know, I mean, Omar probably could have done it. Khalil probably could have done it. But it was like Tupac was born for that role. So right. I, w- I wouldn't change anything. And that question was from Princess Abrafi Saki. I hope that I've pronounced her name correctly. If not, you can curse me out of my DMs. Uh, the next question is, what inspired you to write this classic? Now, I know you mentioned Ernest Dickinson conceived the idea and came to you with the concept, but you fleshed out the story. So what inspired you to come up with their background and, you know, what was yeah. taking place? And You just get creative. I mean, I mean, he came to me. He had a thumbnail sketch of uh, basically the character, what was named MQ, what was named Steel, what was named Raheem, and what was named Bishop. And that's it. And I had to give them families, I had to give them first and last names, I had to give them all backgrounds. That's what you do. That's something you learn in theater. The characters have to be real to you. If these, if these people are not real to you, they're not going to be real to like an audience. And so that's what I had to do with Juice. I had to give them all families, you know. Uh, I had to give Raheem a last name, Porter. I had to give Steele a real name, Eric Thurman. Uh, I had to give Q a last name, Powell. And I had to give Bishop a first name, Roland. I had, mm-hmm. you know, I had to do all that. And Bishop's being raised by, by like his grandmother. The only one who came from a two-parent household was Steele. Yeah. You know? I mean, I had to come up with all that stuff. So that's, that was the training that I got. Mm-hmm. Did I answer that question right? Well, you did. Okay. Yeah. You were talking about the okay. inspiration and the inspiration came from, you know, have making the characters real right. to you. Exactly. <laughs> so you yeah. created each, you created each individual story within yeah. the story. Yeah. Um, so writers, that's, you know, writing 101. <laughs> yes. Um, so the last fan question is, um, you know, they, they mentioned all of the heavy hitters that were in the movie. I mean, you have Omar Epps that went on to do uh, a lot of things. Tupac, you know, he became a big star. You had Samuel L. Jackson. You had Queen Latifah. Okay, well, some of them have started to develop names. I mean, Sam, I mean, Sam's name was starting to rise. Latifah's name was starting to rise. The black film community, especially in New York, was pretty small. Everybody tended to know everybody else. It was Ernest Dickinson's first film, though. And he'd been Spike Lee's cinematographer. Being Spike Lee's cinematographer, he met everybody. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 okay. right. And so, and so he, he was able to get access. He and Jackie Brown, because Jackie Brown did the casting, and they were able to get access to other people, and they all wanted to be in Ernest's first film, his, his directorial debut of a feature. There also so, was a special cameo, like his mother. <laughs> oh yeah, right, Ernest's mother. Yeah, yeah. People don't notice in Juice. There's a woman named Sweets, who is the woman that Omar Epps goes to to buy the gun. And it's a little short, little cute woman. That was Ernest's mother. That was Jackie Dickerson. <laughs> you know? What are some of your fondest memories? Looking at Cindy Heron. <laughs> <laughs> that was my best. 
okay. Her, you know, I didn't say anything to her. I just looked at her. What's but, it gonna be? Okay. In case people who don't know who she is, she's yeah. from Escape, y'all. Not Escape. I'm sorry. She's from uh, SW. No, not no, SWV. No, no, no. From Invo. What's the name? Invo. Lord. <laughs> let me let me try yeah. it again. She's from she's from Invogue, y'all. Because <laughs> <laughs> her character, she was the teacher. She, <laughs> you wrote a no, teacher. No, 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 her no, student. no. She played the nurse. The nurse, the nurse, yes, yes. But, yes. You know, which was a scene that was There are a couple of things about Juice that left me very disappointed. After Cindy and Omar's love scene, she goes into the bathroom and, and you know, and Ernest shot this and she and she prepares to go to work and she puts on her nursing whites, which, which like establishes that she's a nurse. Yeah. And Omar's character Q follows her in, and this scene was shot, and he proposes to her, and she's like, "Whoa, look, we're having a good time. I like it the way it is, you know. Like, don't get serious on me. Don't get that serious on me, mm. because because we want to show that he was actually maturing out of. Well, you got you're all chasing these high school girls. I got twenty something women, you know, like who's hot for me, you know. So, but it's more than that with him. Like, he's in love." You know? Right, right. And that gives him something to like fight for. And like to live for. They're going in robbing bodegas in the middle of the night, you know, like he wants to be with this woman. Yeah. So, and then and in the last scene, the fight with Q and Bishop where Omar and Tupac yes. are fighting on the roof. Yes. And uh and the way the script is written and the way it was shot was that Bishop hears the sirens and the con comes over his face, it which which is not written in the script. And he looks at Q very calmly. He says, I'm not going to jail. I'm not going to jail, man. And he purposely breaks Q's grip. Mm. He can fall to like his own death. Wow. And that's set up in the first act of the film with the scenes involving Bishop and his father. He doesn't, like, he doesn't want to end up like his father. Oh, right. The very first scene where he, uh, his father is watching television. Okay, his father's he... almost catatonic watching television. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and then Radimate dogs him about his father being raped in prison. Right, and, right. And Bishop doesn't want to end up like, like that. You don't want to end up like that. Right. So producers, people write the checks. We're not happy with the way, with the, with the idea that that pitch that that put out there. We, mm -hmm. we lost every script meeting. You know, we walked in and said, like, listen, this is what the whole damn thing's about. You know? Mm -hmm. But they didn't like the message that that gave. So the central character, would you say the movie was Bishop, not Q? Q is the protagonist and Bishop is the antagonist. Okay. For those who don't know the protagonist, the protagonist and the antagonist. The protagonist is the main character that the audience follows and, and like relates to, hopefully, if the film is working. Uh, the protagonist in Star Wars is Luke Skywalker. The protagonist in Batman, in Batman franchise is Bruce Wayne. Uh, or a Batman. Um, and Juice, the protagonist, is Q. Is Omar Epps' character. And the antagonist is, is his adversary. It's, it's Bishop. And Bishop is the antagonist. Mm -hmm. And in Star Wars, it's Darth Vader. In Batman, it's the Joker. But in Juice, it's, it is Bishop. And having a powerful antagonist is what really carries the power of your story. Mm -hmm. You know, like I told my students that 
part of the huge success of the Star Wars franchise was Darth Vader because he was a great villain. He was a great villain. So anyway, so yeah, so we lost that argument in the end. And we feel the film suffered for it. Mm, so you're still mad about that to this day? Yeah, yeah, really, of course. At the original screenings, I walked out the last 10 minutes of the film. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't watch it. Oh, wow. Wow. You know, because of that. But, you know, but, but on the flip side of that, I was grateful that the film got made and that I got paid for it. I was out of debt. <laughs> we all like to get paid. <laughs> yeah, we all like to get paid. But I was principled that a lot of writers want to do principled stuff. But honestly, most, most writers just want to tell a good story. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and that's it. The best writing job I ever had, I wrote for a series called Happily Ever After, Fairy Tale 7. I remember that. Right. I loved that show. It used to come on Saturday mornings? It comes on every morning now. It's like your family. Mm-hmm. I wrote four episodes of that. And that was Silskin, Rapunzel, uh, Goldilocks, and Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. And the cool thing about that was that there's never been a series like that before where, like, the digital children's fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Were, were like converted into being multiracial, multicultural. When I first got the meeting, they told me Cinderella was going to be Mexican. It's going to be Mexicans. Mm. And I was like, oh, cool. And, and, and the emperor's new clothes, he was going to be a Japanese emperor. Wow. So, so like they gave me Rumpelstiltskin and I made it a Caribbean story. I made him like a roster. Wow. Yes. I yeah. remember that one. Uh-huh. And you know, like, and that was, it, it was just the best job I ever had because mm-hmm. I could be a kid again. I could be a kid and I can, and I could do a spin on that. I mean, whenever you get jobs like like, like that, it is a mm-hmm. because at times it's difficult being in a position where like you're doing a job just for the money, mm-hmm. where you're writing where you're writing for a gig just for the cash. Which if you get a staff job on the show, you can make a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> I can think of remember you telling me that you could even make a lot of money doing porn, <laughs> not I mean, like, acting in porn, but writing. <laughs> but writing porn, I didn't know. I didn't know porn films had scripts. I had a couple of friends who were really credible writers, writing one-hour dramas when I was out there in the nineties. That the work got thin, and they had bills to pay, and they started writing porn stuff. Whatever you got, <laughs> yeah, gotta really. yeah, yeah, you gotta do what you gotta do. You know, you know oh, right. just 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 write under a, a pseudonym. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Well, you know. Well, that's what they were doing. They, but that's what they were doing. They were always working on this film. They were using their real name because it could really damage you in terms of getting in. Getting work, yeah. Well, I yeah. try not to be judgmental about that. And plus, well, I've written stuff. You did porn? Stuff. You wrote porn? No, not in my porn. <laughs> I never wrote porn. God, no. The ghost of my mother's hand would come out of the grave and slap <laughs> me across the room. <laughs> you, know, you know, like if I wrote that stuff. But I've written stuff on the contract that I wouldn't have written otherwise. And my mother told me once, it is a sin before God to be given a talent and not use it. Yes. yes. Right. Say that again. I'm going mm-hmm. to need you to be like the preacher of the church and say that uh, okay. again. Sin before God to be given a talent and not to use it. Mm. And not to show it to the world. Mm. And that and that drove me further into being a writer, you know, into doing that. I love yeah. that. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about going back and writing another stage play. I'm thinking about going back and writing theater. You should. I've written, written stage play in a while. You should. Now is a good time, more than any, to get your typewriter out. Yeah, really. Dust it I'm off like, and get your play and start submitting it to the, the uh, different theater companies in New York. Because I'm sure they're looking. Did you say typewriter? 
Yes, I did. <laughs> I haven't seen a chiropractor in 25 years. Yeah. Look, I, I mean, when you talking to someone of a particular age. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I, <laughs> I wrote Jonan. I wrote my first play. I wrote that on the chiropractor. I wrote my first one I played. <laughs> I can't on. even imagine that. Yeah, no. I wrote that on the chiropractor. Now I use Final Draft. You, mm -hmm. know, you know, I use software. So who... <laughs> are your favorite directors? Martin Scorsese. I like everything he's done. I like some of Spike's stuff. I like, actually, I like Ron Howard's stuff. Writers? But, uh, I've been a Lawrence Kasdan fan for years. Uh, Lawrence Kasdan wrote uh, The Empire Strikes Back, uh, Silverado, The Big Chill, The Accidental Tourist, because, like, he's just not restricted in the type of stuff that he does. I like William Goldman. I like virtually, you know, I love Marathon Man. It's one of my favorite movies. The newer writers, like oh, who the, are you? Yeah, I actually don't know many of the newer writers. Mm, okay, okay. You know, I that means that me. means dang. <laughs> well, honestly, you know, maybe it's like it's because I'm not pursuing them. Well, a lot of times I was I was reading my student stuff because I was teaching at LIU and at the middle school. Mm -hmm. I can tell you who I'm starting to think of in terms in terms of acting. I you know I think Anthony Mackie's working all the time. I just, yeah, you know, I just heard Michael Williams passed away. Yes, and I, I, I wanted to bring him up, and it's, 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 it's a sad day in the acting community. Yeah, um, because it, you know, he's just so, so fucking amazing. I mean, his resume is so yeah. He worked long. all the time. He worked all he the time. So long. Yeah, like I mean. You know, like in the wire and blood, yeah, and, and Boardwalk Empire, he and what was, Cup. yeah, and it wasn't just like you know, his, I mean, of course, his talent was was amazing, but he is a, a person like he was just so unapologetic, and that's what I love about him. And I mean, we don't know exactly what happened. You know, people just have been assuming because of what the reports have been saying, what they found at the apartment, right. Um, right. you know, it's just, you know, people have their struggles. I mean, you never know what people are really going through. Just, just make sure that you have a, a good community around you to like support you. To nurture you. And, to nurture and you. I mean, nurture you to support you. And, you know, when yeah. you're, when they see you going down the wrong path to try to like reel you back. I mean, but again, I mean, this, I mean, it's not just in Hollywood that this, this, this occurs. I mean, it's in life period you know people who yeah. are um a, you know have a suffer from a drug addic addiction but um yeah and he was he was you know very upfront about those struggles um and i just you know it's just unfortunate and just coming from dmx who also passed from drug overdose so you know it's a sad day and if you don't mind i do want to take a moment of silence in remembrance of of michael, michael k williams michael yeah. k williams Thank you, Michael K. Williams. And then one of the things I saw someone say is that energies don't die. So, you know, he may not be here physically, <laughs> right. but at least we have something to always remember him by. And that's the legacy that he left behind. So, yeah, yeah. You know, but so many of our young people, you know, Chadwick Boseman. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's another one. Oh, that's another yeah. one that hurt me to my core. I mean, you know, it's like. That you know, hurt me. I mean, savor. 
savor the times with these people because yes these, yeah so. when i heard chadwick had passed i was i went for a run in queens and it's this beautiful park that's near the forest hills area it's in kew gardens i was running for him and, and kobe too right and um i just like started bawling because it's like you know you it's sort of selfish in a way because i don't really know chadwick obviously personally and so it's just <laughs> like oh i'm so sad because you know, I'm not going to get any more of his work. Like, he was so amazing. But yeah, it's just, it's just like you said, savor, savor those, those, those moments and cherish the people who are around you and give people their flowers. So with that in mind, I want to give you your flowers. I do. I think that, and I'm about to like tear up. <laughs> so why am I about to tear up? Um, I think that you are an amazing human being. Uh, you're super, du super duper talented. I'm so grateful to uh, have you in my life. Um, and I don't think I've ever told you this, you know, before. No, you never um, told me this. This is getting a little scary. Or been so emotional because I'm yeah. not this nice to people. <laughs> yeah, really, I, you know, I did observe that. Yeah. <laughs> Look, hey, it is what it is. Uh, want you to be around for many 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 years yeah we all want to be around many more years though so yeah <laughs> i think this is a great way to end but before we do do you have any last minute parting words you want to say to our future storytellers the only thing i'm going to say is this. don't be afraid to fail because not everybody's going to appreciate the work the work that you do i mean i've written stuff that i thought that i thought was great, okay? Got, got thrown back at me as fresh. And then the other times I've half-assed put something together, people came back and called me a genius. You never know. You never know how people are going to react. You never know how your work is going to be received. We were just talking about Juice. I am surprised that it, that it has achieved this cult status. I mean, I am delighted that it has. I am I'm ecstatic about that. But I was not expecting that at all. Your Vibe magazine had written an article, and it was number two of the most influential. Yeah, behind Scarface, the top fifty films of most influential hip hop culture. Mm -hmm. So, so like you never know, you never know. So don't be afraid. You gotta be fearless. Some people are gonna love your stuff. Some people are gonna hate your stuff. I had a horrible review from from like Newsday when Joni was at the public theater. And I wanted to, to write down the guy with the review, uh, like hang him off to George Washington. Mm -hmm. yeah. You wanted, <laughs> you yeah. wanted to Suge Knight him? <laughs> yeah, well, I want to Suge Knight him, exactly. You know, but like not everybody's gonna appreciate your stuff. Not everybody else. I mean, other people came up, especially people who went to HBCUs, they really, they really saw it and got into it. Spike Lee came to see it eight times at the public theater. Wow. So people will always be out there the bad mouth your uh, stuff will undermine you. Or you. You just ignore them. If you believe in what you're doing, and if you have a message, if you have something you want to say artistically, then just put it out there. You got to be fearless. Put it out there. You never know where. Right. You know, like you never know. Okay? I Listen, love that. I have totally and... enjoyed this. Mac, you know, I do anything. I call her Mac, by the way. Thank you so much. I appreciate you calling in and speaking well, with me. Invite me to one of your play openings. Invite me to one of your screenings. <laughs> I would definitely invite you to one of my readings for sure. Okay. okay. Right. For sure. And 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 I mean you you just want an opening ticket. You don't want the Maybach no more. Okay, great. No, 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 no. <laughs> Save me somebody. Well, I don't want the Maybach now. I want I want the Maserati. 
You want, oh, we want Maseratis. <laughs> yeah, I want the Maserati. Yes, I got you. I got you, kid. That is a wrap, as the director <laughs> would say, or the AD would say. That's a wrap. I'll chop it up with you guys next week, but I want to send you guys off in a good way. Here's this new young artist by the name of Keith Buxton. His song is called Fire, which is exactly what it is. Until next time, au